Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his grand circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave, and welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. On today's podcast, I wanted to reflect on a story that I found in the Washington Post that was from May 15, 1994, when Disney comes to town. The author of this article was actually Richard... The author of this article is Richard Fogelsong. Now, you may remember Richard as the person who wrote Married to the Mouse. He had that interesting perspective about what happened with Disney and getting the Special Improvement District. And I've had Richard on my show in the past. It was many years ago. I had just read Married to the Mouse, and I uh, found it to be quite fascinating. So I asked him to come on the show, and he was really good. He had a lot of interesting things to say about how the Disney company was structured and what they were doing. So I thought it was go- worth going back to this article and talking about it because it kind of gives you perspective when you think about what recently happened in the Florida legislature. So the story reads, It was as though they'd put a gun to our head, said the director of Tri-County Planning. They were offering to invest $600 million, and there was a glamour of Disney. You could hardly say no to that. We were all just spellbound. They had come from around the state to hear, finally, what Disney's new East Coast theme park would look like. The new Republican governor and most of his cabinet were there. So was half of the legislature. Bankers, developers, and a plane load of reporters filled out the audience. Everyone was clamoring to hear Disney's proposal, but the politicians, in particular, were anxious to know what the giant entertainment company would demand of the state legislature. The project was Walt Disney World. The year was 1967. The place was Winter Park, Florida, outside of Orlando, where the Poobahs had gathered to hear Disney's plan for a regional theme park. There are significant differences between 1960s Florida and 1990s Virginia, of course. Floridians were relatively untutored in the consequences of urban growth, while Virginians today are not so naive. Yet the odd familiarity of the Winter Park scene highlights some of the more striking parallels between Disney's Orlando project and its present-day plans for a park in Haymarket. Then, as now, Disney's proposal was accompanied by hardball lobbying from the company, hoopla from business interests, enthusiastic support from a Republican governor, and a struggle over the financing of roads. Then, as now, the Walt Disney Company proved more powerful than local critics or media skeptics, hiring the right lobbyists and nurturing the right legislators. Then, as now, Disney got what it wanted from the state. Given these similarities, it's instructive to consider the disparity between the plan that Disney laid out on that heady day in Winter Park and what actually transpired in Central Florida. Simply put, the California company proposed one kind of development, which it used to gain special governmental powers, and then built something else. And yet Floridians, blinded by the pixie dust, hardly noticed. Then, as now, people were mesmerized by the Disney mystique. The big news about the Florida project, initially, was its much-vaunted plan for a model city where ordinary people would make their homes and go about their lives in an idealized setting. This was a concept that had been brewing for some time. Two years before the Winter Park presentation, Walt Disney, speaking at a Florida press conference, rhapsodized about building a city of tomorrow 
In the following months, the city of tomorrow became an obsession with Walt, according to Disney biographer Bob Thomas. The company already knew how to build an amusement park, Waltz insisted. So he focused his attention on what he was soon calling an experimental prototype community of tomorrow, or Epcot. But the company's commitment to Epcot depended on creative leadership of one man, Walt himself. In the fall of 1966, Orlando banker and power broker Billy Dial flew to California to meet with the 64-year-old Disney. Worried about the showman's health, he asked over lunch, Mr. Disney, if you walked out of this restaurant and were hit by a truck, what would happen to the Orlando project? Walt responded, absolutely nothing. My brother runs this company. I just piddle around. Dial was unpersuaded, and with good reason. Three weeks later, he was in New York at the Bankers Trust Company when he received a hurried phone call from, a Disney, from Disney executive Don Tatum, who simply said, Walt is dead. It was December 15, 1966, and Walt Disney had died from lung cancer before almost anyone realized he was ill. His death left the company directionless, creatively at least, and Epcot, which had existed mostly in his head, in a state of flux. Roy Disney, the company's financial mastermind and Walt's older brother, was 73 and had already announced his plans to retire. Roy agreed to stay on and, after polling senior executives, gave the East Coast project his blessing and directed it that it be called Walt Disney World as a tribute to his brother. Disney execs knew little of Walt's Epcot plans, however, so they focused instead on building a Disneyland-type amusement park. As Disney Vice President Card Walker would later observe, it was the thing we knew best. Indeed, Walt's comments on a May 23, 1966 memo suggested that he himself had privately backed away from the model city vision before he died. In the memo, which was found in Walt's desk and is now kept at the Disney Archives in Burbank, California, Florida attorney Paul Hallowell sketched out the problem of allowing permanent residents at Epcot. If people lived there, they would vote there, diluting the company's political control of the property. It seems that Walt's thoughts were headed in a similar direction. On the memo, every time Hallowell referred to permanent residents, Walt crossed it out and substituted temporary residents slash tourists. Yet the company persisted in hyping Epcot as the centerpiece of Walt Disney World. When shortly after Walt's death, Roy addressed that standing room only crowd in Winter Park, he touted Epcot. The highlight of the press conference was a 25-minute color film, Walt's last screen appearance, in which he described Epcot as the heart of the Florida project, a vibrant community where people would live, work, and play. In the film and in the accompanying press release, the company said Epcot would serve an, an initial population of 20,000. Following the Winter Park press conference, Roy and Republican Governor Claude Kirk flew to Jacksonville, where they filmed a joint presentation that was shown along with the Epcot film on statewide television. Floridians thus saw Walt, in a posthumous appearance, describing Epcot as a working community that would always be on the cutting edge of technology and urban design. The film was unequivocal in, its, in this depiction, yet a decade later, a Disney spokesman would state that the model city concept was, quote, only one visual presentation of one way to go, end quote. The film was likewise shown to the Florida legislature as it began to work on the Disney legislation. If, after Walt's death, the company was uncommitted to building a true residential community, why did the company officials present this as the crux of their proposal? In part, it was because the Epcot film was so visually compelling. With Walt alive on screen, offering his futuristic vision of Epcot and appealing for lawmakers' support, but it was also for legal reasons best explained in the Hallowell memo. In that memo, Hallowell expressed concern about the state and local laws that might limit the company's, quote, freedom of action in developing its 43 square mile property. 
he proposed a Disney-controlled government with regulatory powers superseding to the fullest extent possible under law state and county regulatory authorities. There was just one hitch. Under Florida law, as Hellowell explained, planning and zoning authority could only be exercised by a popularly elected government. To escape external land use controls, the company had to submit to control by voters. Disney attorneys, however, found a clever way to avoid this fate. Their proposed legislation called for a two-tier system of government. The top tier, embracing an area twice the size of Manhattan, was the Reedy Creek Improvement District. It would, it would be controlled by the landowner, its board of supervisors elected on the principle of one acre equals one vote. Since Disney owned the land, Disney would elect the board. The bottom tier consisted of two municipalities, Bay Lake and Lake Buena Vista, each having a handful of residents who would be trusted Disney employees living in company housing. Officially, planning and zoning authority was vested in these two municipalities. Their residents would elect a government and then, ingeniously, transfer administrative responsibility for planning and zoning to the Reedy Creek District. By this legal magic, the company was able to comply with the law and still enjoy regulatory immunity. The charter made it possible for the Reedy Creek government to regulate land use, provide police and fire services, license and manufacture the sale of alcoholic beverages, build roads, lay sewer lines, construct waste treatment plants, carry out flood projects, even build an airport or nuclear plant, all without local or state approval. The company was creating a sort of Vatican with mouse ears, a city-state within the larger state of Florida, controlled by the company yet enjoying regulatory powers reserved by law for popularly elected governments. To acquire such powers, the company had to convince the Florida legislature that Epcot would be a bona fide community. Paul Hallowell, acting as lobbyist, frequently used the term resident in describing the company's plans. Disney lobbyists also told lawmakers that Disney would include public school sites and other public needs in their two cities. According to an April 22, 1967 article in the Orlando Sentinel Star. And Hallowell told legislatures few of whom had read the thick Reedy Creek Charter, that the company was not asking for anything that had not been done before. At best, the statement was half true. The charter combined the powers available in three kinds of special districts, but Florida had not combined those powers in one district before. In persuading the legislature to adopt this legislation, the California company ably plied the old boy system. A good example is a meeting between J.J. Griffin, a former state representative who became a Disney lobbyist, and the powerful president of the Senate, Verl Pope. Griffin had stated a long-winded explanation of the weighty Reedy Creek Charter when Pope stopped him. J.J., he said, I just have one question. Is this good for Florida? Griffin answered, yes, sir, I believe it is. Whereupon Pope said, well, that's good enough for me. The anecdote is recounted by Griffin in the film Florida's Disney Decade, which was produced by Disney. With Pope's blessing, the legislation sailed through the Senate, passing unanimously and without debate. In the House, there was one dissenting vote from Miami. Less than an hour after the vote, the State Road Board approved emergency funding for Disney's road requests. And finally, the Florida Supreme Court ruled in 1968 that the Reedy Creek District was legally entitled to issue tax-free municipal bonds. The bonding power would greatly aid Disney interests, but would nevertheless benefit the numerous inhabitants of the district, the court ruled. What about those numerous inhabitants today? How fair is the city where 20,000 would live, work, and play? Sure enough, in 1982, 11 years after the turnstiles began spinning at Disney World, the company opened something called Epcot. Yet today, there are more hotels than homes on Disney property. 
Between the two cities of Bay Lake and Lake Buena Vista, there are 43 residents living in 17 mobile homes, all non-union Disney supervisors and their families who safeguard the company's political control of its property. Disney is also designing a huge mixed development called Celebration, billed as a further realization of Walt's urban vision. While some permanent housing is scheduled for Celebration, it will be de-annexed from the Reedy Creek District, making it impossible for homeowners to vote in Disney elections. Celebration will also have timeshare units whose temporary occupants will not have voting rights. The model city described by Walt, promoted by Roy, and dangled before the Florida lawmakers by Disney lobbyists has never come about. The promises of 1967 are the stuff of history, and it seems safe to say that this isn't the kind of history that will be featured in the Haymarket project. Now, as the article points out, Richard Fogelsong is a professor of politics at Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida, and wrote the book about Disney World in Orlando. That's the Married to the Mouse book. And it is really interesting. It's definitely worth a read if you want to, if you want to get into it a little bit. Kind of a, one of those stories that you can pick up and uh, understand a little bit. Now, I find this interesting given what happened, you know, what's changed. Disney never really came through with the idea of building their Epcot. They never had the 20,000 residents. I don't think they ever really planned on having them. If I, if I were a betting man, I would say they never really planned on having them. Sure, they talked about it a lot, and maybe it was discussed, and maybe Walt would have found a way to make it work had he lived, but the company never really had any grand plans to do anything quite like that. They wanted control of their district, and as I've said in the past, there's a nature to it where some of the things that they got done and got done quickly, they could have never done had they been under the county control of, say, Orange or Osceola County. It just never would have happened. They never would have been able to time it up, make things happen quickly. There's this one story that I've heard floated a, a number of times that I think has some truth to it. Disney was going through cons the construction process, and some of the construction workers, their supervisors were slowing down jobs you know, to delay them, to make sure that everybody got paid, to do all the things that normally would happen in a construction job. It's just the nature of construction. Roy got mad. Roy actually fired the construction company, and that's when Joe Fowler started the Buena Vista Construction Company, which was a Disney-owned construction company. And they wound up hiring all of the same or most of the same construction workers to continue on the job to make sure that it got done on time. So those kinds of things, where you think about Disney and just how complicated it was to build something of this complexity on this scale in this time frame, had Disney not been able to govern themselves, do the permitting, the planning, do all the things they wanted to do, Walt Disney World may have opened in 1974 instead of 1971. It's just the nature of it. And because they were able to get things done quickly and kind of control their own district, they really had more autonomy to do the things they needed to do to build a wonderful place. Now, I agree with Vogelsong when he says that it probably was wrong and essentially the state was hoodwinked. I'll agree with that. And I do believe that Disney's special improvement district did need to end. Where I'm questioning things is how it ends and where it goes, as I've said in the past. It's just a general question about how this all plays out. There's so many questions I have. And, you know, the history is so complex and so rich, and the Supreme Court ruled on it in the state. And it's been reviewed many times. It's gone to the federal courts. And it was always approved. It was always upheld. So to do away with it with the stroke of a pen just seems like it's asking for more trouble. We'll see. We'll see if it works out or doesn't work out but it just feels like there's a lot of things that still need to be worked out. Issuing tax-free municipal bonds is a big deal. 
And the fact that Disney could do that and they were repaying it through their costs, what happens to those bonds now? Who owns them? Where do they go to? Who repays them? How does that work? It's a different challenge because essentially the improvement district was on the hook for it. If you don't have the improvement district anymore, then the state is on the hook for it. So what happens? What happens to emergency services? They get rolled into Orange or Osceola County. Then they have to hire more people. Yes, they're gonna to have to have an assessment against Disney, but everyone's costs will go up as a result of that. That's just the nature of doing business. You know, now you've got different permitting and planning and things that have to happen, as I've talked about in the past. There's just so many factors here that have to be considered that you just have to wonder how this is all gonna play out. And then of course, Disney doesn't have to play nice in the state anymore. They were pretty nice about everything they did. They did everything by the book because they had this special improvement district and they were trying to do certain things. You know, if they don't have to abide by those rules anymore, they could change their policies and plans too. They could do things differently and be more uh, confrontational with the state and with local regulators. They don't have to play nice in the sandbox if they don't want to. They probably will, but they don't have to. And this is where things get, you know, maybe a little bit interesting and we will see where it all plays out. One little spark of inspiration is at the heart <laughs> of all creation. Right at the start of everything that's new. One little spark lights up for you. For my One Little Spark segment today, I want to keep it short and simple. And it's to remind you to literally wake up and smell the roses. Put down your phone, turn off social media, walk away, go outside, enjoy some fresh air and some sunshine, go on a little hike, a little walk, a bike ride, do something outside. Don't take your camera, don't take your phone. Well, unless of course you wanna have it for security reasons, but don't take it out. Don't stand there and take pictures and selfies. Don't post to social media. Don't respond to texts. And I guess my general advice to you is to once in a while, may it be it once a week, once a couple, every couple of days, to just turn off your phone, to just set it down, walk away from it. Everything can wait. Look, we're supposed to be a connected society. I get that. And over the last couple of years, it's been hard to connect in different ways. And, you know, we became dependent on our phones and social media as a means to connect with others. But now we're getting back out there again. It's time to actually wake up, go outside, talk to your neighbors, go see your friends, and actually have a conversation face-to-face -face and put the phone down. Turn it off. Just leave it alone. Take our noses out of our phones and just enjoy ourselves for a little while. That's what we should be doing. We are social animals, no question. We should be out there and doing things. But this social media thing, there's no reason for that. There's no reason to get so engaged in that way where it's impersonal and you're not involved with someone. So much better to see someone face to face, to actually look them in the eye and have a conversation, an actual honest to goodness conversation about whatever. It doesn't matter what it is. It's just time to actually put it down for a while. So my suggestion, as I said, was, you know, once a week or so for an hour, just put your phone down. Go do something else and don't even worry about your phone. For an hour, everyone can wait. I'd also like to remind you that when you have dinner, have it as a family, sit down together, talk about your day, put all the phones in a pile over on the counter off to the side or on a side table and don't worry about them. Just talk to each other, have a conversation, learn something about your family, your parents, your children, the person you're living with. Get to know them a little differently. Don't look at their social media posts. Don't try to figure out what's going on there. It's, it's nice just to actually have a conversation. And I mean an honest to goodness, real conversation. 
So that's my one little spark for you today. Interact with people. Put the phone down. Walk away. And that is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gilles. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company. 